Welcome to the Otherwise Podcast, Season 2. I'm Casey Tigert. I'm a pastor, author, and spiritual director. There's a story in the Gospels that I really love. Jesus is coming from the city of Jericho, and he's walking along a road. And as he goes along the road, there's a crowd. There's always a crowd greeting Jesus. And on this road, there is a man, a blind man named Bartimaeus, who's shouting, Son of David, have mercy on me. And people tell him to keep quiet, but he doesn't. He keeps shouting. Finally, Jesus says, come to me. And he comes. And obviously, it's clear when he walks up to Jesus, trying to feel his way through the crowd, what's going on. And what I love is that Jesus asks him a question. He says, what is it that you want me to do for you? Now, if I'm the disciples, I bump Jesus and go, uh, he's blind. Let's, uh, I don't know, start there, perhaps. It's an interesting question, and it challenges something that my guest today, Bethany McKinney Fox, also challenges, which is our notion and belief about what it means to be healed. Does it mean for a blind man to take away his blindness, or does it mean something else? In this episode, we talk about healing. We talk about the cultural stereotypes of Jesus's time and also the cultural stereotypes of ours, our belief in biomedical healing versus holistic healing. In her book, Disability and the Way of Jesus, Bethany outlines what it means both in Jesus' time and in ours for someone to be healed. She talks about how the church today can approach the conversation and interaction with different forms of disabilities, with grace and hope and healing. Here's my new friend, Bethany McKinney-Fox. Bethany, thanks for joining us today. I really appreciate you taking this time. Thank you. So always, and um, ever since I've been doing this podcast, so all of uh, almost two years now, so it's a tradition, uh, I always ask guests this first question. Uh, if you were going to define the word wisdom, where would you start? Yeah, I love, I love that question. Um, and I think when we first talked about it and the first thing that came to my mind was um, I've been kind of off and on reading through this book by Howard Thurman called Disciplines of the Spirit. And there's this one part where he talks about um, wisdom. <laughs> and uh, I, I went back to look at it and I'm like, oh, he actually is talking about wisdom. I didn't just decide it was about wisdom. <laughs> anyway, he has a, he's talking about when you're kind of wanting to communicate truth to someone, um, that if you do it at the wrong time, even truth becomes error. That's the way he says it. Um, and I think that kind of gets at what wisdom is for me, which is that it's about, um, it can be about the application of knowledge or knowing um, just kind of what is the, right and appropriate way to use things that you know or to interact well. Um, and I was realizing initially that it was really verbal, thinking about it as, as I thought about it initially. Like it's about knowing some kind of truth and then saying it at the right time and basically not saying it at the wrong time, um, knowing when, when to say it. But I think it's also more than verbal because I was thinking about also people I know with intellectual disabilities who may not use language and their, the ways that they manifest wisdom. <clears throat> and it really still is, um, it has something to do with knowing how to um, engage 
I don't know, it's something about the right timing and the right action or the right, it could be a word, um, but it's something about knowing the situation and the person and the environment as well as some kind of information or something else. So. Well, the the thing that occasioned our conversation is is your book, um, Disability in the Way of Jesus, and talking about the Gospels and the interaction of the Church uh, with disability. And we'll we'll dive into that a bit more. But it's interesting what I hear in your definition is something that I hear in the book, which is this embodiment of not only wisdom but how we approach following Jesus, how churches and individuals understand the embodied side of being a human being. Like exactly. What makes us human is our bodies mm-hmm. and everything that goes along with that, which kind of leads naturally into, so what do we do? You mentioned people with intellectual disabilities, uh, obviously physical dis- disabilities. But to back up a little bit, this is a big discussion. Yeah. So as I'm reading your book, I'm going, oh, wow, that's – like it's like walking through the house and opening doors mm. and realizing every single room in the house needs some attention. Yeah. And like here's the here's the psychological room. Right. Here's the <laughs> theological room and right. here's the ecclesiastical the church side of it. Yes. So but but to do all of that for you to do all that to to do the work that you had to do for this book there had to be a hunger behind it. And yeah. I, I believe books are kind of the collation of people's lives. So where did the hunger for this kind of conversation come from for you? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I think it really came from like a paradox that I felt um, or just encountered, which was I always joke that like if it wasn't heretical to have a favorite member of the Trinity, um, mine would be Jesus. But I'm like, oh, but since it's heretical, I like them all equally. Um, but you know, I love Jesus and I like, you know, following Jesus, the gospels, I'm just into it. And my life has been powerfully shaped by following Jesus. And, and so, you know, at the same time, I've been in the disability community now for a while, um, in various ways. And over time have heard story after story of people with disabilities who, you know, in encountering Um, different theologies or practices that are rooted in the way of Jesus in the Gospels, particularly like his healing encounters with people, um, they've been really wounded or, um, you know, found it to be very unhealing. And so I thought, you know, this is really perplexing that, you know, while I've encountered Jesus to be this kind of whole-making, with a W, (laughs) whole-making, you know, liberating, a really refreshing presence in life. Um, other Christians who have been trying to follow Jesus have been hurting people with disabilities. And so I think it was really kind of like, is there a way to, and what a lot of people have done is just thrown out the texts then, um, the, the ones that are experienced as harmful. So I thought, is there a way to not throw Jesus out with the bathwater and still um, find a way to truly follow in the way of Jesus that's actually healing for people. So I think that was kind of the question that that kind of provoked the conversation. 
Was there a was there a person or a story that you held in mind while you worked on this? Not just one. I mean, there's a for some reason a lot of people with disabilities who have um, experienced, let's say, um, unasked for, like. Uh, drop through drive through prayers by people they don't know <laughs> happen in grocery store parking lots. So for some reason, like a few different people talked about being in the grocery store parking lot, just going about their lives and people approaching them and saying, can we pray for you? We want, and let's say they're in wheelchairs. Can we like pray for you to walk again or something? And uh, so I think maybe somehow that was in my mind a little bit to like drive by prayer time or something <laughs> but um but but more things than that i mean it's really like i'm around my friends with intellectual disabilities regularly and um you know all kinds of different friends on social media and stuff so it's like i'm hearing this all the time various ways that people are impacted by um church practices that are not really welcoming or celebrating of who they are so so the work you're doing if I'm hearing you right, you, you're hoping that it, the book, but also what you do currently, you're hoping that it addresses both the position of the person of, of faith who thinks my job is to heal or to channel this gift of healing and the person who is being drive-by prayed for, basically. Yeah. <laughs> the target, I was the target of a drive-by healing. Yeah. Um, so it's, to, it's really to try and connect with both of those groups. Then. Yeah. Yeah, so it's, um, I think, you know, being aware that, like, the way we think about healing is just as curing, and that that is how Christians tend to want to appropriate the healing ministry of Jesus. Um, And so, yeah, I really would love for people not to go around wounding people with disabilities in the name of Jesus. (laughs) That would be excellent. And I think that other people would also appreciate it. I don't think that's I don't think that's too much to ask, honestly. <laughs> and then, um, yeah, but I do, you know, I've heard from various people, like some people who are already engaged in disability ministry, um, but then also people with disabilities. I've heard even from um, a couple of people I don't know who ran across the book and were like, you know, this is articulating something that I didn't quite get why I was so uncomfortable at church sometimes um, as people tried to interact with me in certain ways or name certain things about my body. Um, but reading your book was helpful in that like I could still dig into Jesus in a certain way and also understand why sometimes church wasn't adding up for me. Um, so, so yeah, I do. I think in, I'm more held in mind the people who are, have creating practices that are harmful maybe as I was writing the book. Um, but I think I, I also was holding in mind the fact of, yeah, I guess wanting the people who are bearing the burden of kind of what seems to be too narrow theology of healing. Um, yeah, I guess, I guess it was, everybody was kind of in mind. Yeah. One of the things that I've noticed in the conversation is how important in the conversation you're having, but also outside of, of what you've been talking about, talk, working with friends of mine who are engaged in a bunch of different kinds of work that involves people with disabilities, is that that word, um, do we say, how do we say it? 
and yeah. the idea of self-identification and identify. So is it disabled? Is it differently abled? Is it, do you use the word handicapped? Do you use, and you, you talk about at the beginning of the book, the difference between an impairment and a disability. How, can you help people understand the language that's helpful? Because sure. if we're talking about not being harmful, it really does start with our yeah, words. Absolutely. Um, what's the helpful language and the helpful distinctions people need to know? Yeah, well, here's the thing. There is just no universally agreed upon language. Um, you know, I've, ha- I've gotten very angry, well, one very angry email from someone who feels like the word disability is a slur. And then there's a lot of other people who feel like um, the word disability is just an accurate description of their experience and there shouldn't need to be shame associated with it. So by not using the word disability, it's actually creating shame around something that shouldn't be shameful. And so if you can't just name it directly, it's because you think there's something wrong with it. Um, and so there's this whole campaign like on Twitter that's like hashtag say the word and it's like saying look this isn't a bad word this is just a reality for people a reality for us and please go ahead and use the direct language and not your like fluffy terms for like trying to tiptoe around something that actually isn't something bad Um, language is very tricky and I mean at the end of the day obviously like you're saying self-identification is the most important if you're friends with someone I mean, obviously, you're, if you're friends with someone, you're probably not going to refer to them by their diagnosis or disability label anyway. You'll just call them, you know, whatever their name is. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, the language thing is extremely, um, extremely controversial, actually. And it comes up um, in the autistic community quite a bit. Um, and what you find is there's sometimes a distinction between the people who have the particular classification and then people who are like parents of children who maybe have autism or something um, and the difference between those groups sometimes. So um, like in the case of autism, uh, there's adult adults who are autistic prefer to be just called autistic people um, and they don't feel the need for it to be you know, this, they don't need to be a person with autism because they're like, look, I'm not like a person with whiteness or a person with, you know, womanness. Like I'm a woman, I'm a white person, I'm an autistic person. They're like just saying these are things that like are, we don't need to be ashamed of it. They're just identity markers. It doesn't sum me up. But then you have sometimes caregivers or people who might not ha- actually be autistic who are saying, they want to push back and say, this, we don't want this to define you, so we want to say you're a person with autism and not an autistic person. Um, yeah, it's just really complicated. And it's hard to have, and I think what I finally say in the book is like, look, we have to have this conversation, it's important, and so we have to pick some kind of language. <laughs> and the reality is, at the moment, disability is kind of the language that's the clearest, it's used across the academy, um, it's used in social services. I mean, it's just kind of the language people are familiar with. Um, and I think it does matter to me that people with disabilities themselves, um, advocates with disabilities prefer very direct language like that. And so I think I've listened to them and heeded their preferences while knowing any word I choose is just not gonna please everybody. And 
Um, yeah, and so I think it's complicated, but thank you for asking the question. <laughs> it's dangerous waters where there are many sharks and <laughs> that's all I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a fair, I think that's a fair warning. Um, I wonder, I wonder how much of it is also, we tend to not be able to love well when we're communicating to a general, mm. in a general way. Uh, it's easier in communication on a large scale to create a big category and to address it. Whereas to know what a person wants, how they want to be referred to means you need to know the person. Right. And that requires an, in, an intimacy that doesn't go as far. I mean, that word is loaded, but it goes a little deeper than a big group. Uh, and tell me, I, I need to get to know you and beyond your disability. What, what is it? How is it that you want? to be referred to. Right. And this language goes a long way. Uh, there are several different situations where, you know, how do you, how do you refer to uh, people and how do they, how do they designate themselves? Right. Um, and I don't know that we're good at that in the church. Mm. We, we, I think we find a group. I mean, the wisdom obviously is get to know the person. Um, but like you said, we still need to have this bigger conversation so we sort of have to pick a lane and go with it. So right. I'm gonna I'm not gonna swim in those shark infested waters. Well, can I so just thanks. say one thing about that? Please, yeah. Um, I think that the key, if I could just offer any wisdom for navigating the shark infested waters, <laughs> it's just that it's always best to allow the people who you are labeling to have the key voice in the conversation. Mm. It, the people who are bearing the label. And so, um, you know, if you're creating a ministry in your church, um, not to just let all the people on staff who might not have disabilities decide what it should be called, but really to, just like you're saying, churches aren't always good at kind of asking, but so ask, <laughs> try to get better at it. <laughs> so that's my only input is that ask the actual folks who are going to be part of it. Um, and let their voice be dominant. So, yeah. It, and it, this, I think, what we're talking about right now highlights one of the big chunks of the book is we have this sacred text, we have the Bible that has its own culture and especially has its own culture around bodies, healing, and, and the implications of that. And so you talk in the book about the uh, the idea of, and I'm, I may pronounce this wrong, so feel free to correct me, of emic versus etic um, perspectives. Right. So the, the basically the perspective of the insider looking out and the outsider looking in, and all of us who read the scriptures are from that second. We're from the outsider looking in, meaning there's some things we miss. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how our way of reading the scriptures from the outside has actually created some challenges in the conversations around healing specifically and disability? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I found that distinction really helpful because I recognized how, well, part of it was look at these healing narratives that some of them are quite long with lots of details and things like that. And yet when we are summing up what happens, like, you know, when you see a Bible story, like some of those Bibles that have 
the little bold headline above the next section. Um, it'll it'll basically boil down the thing into like blind guy sees again or something like that. Um, and so it became you know really clear that our outsider's perspective brings baggage, and we don't come to the text with um, just to say, I wonder what healing means. I wonder what a good body is like. We already have those ideas. We already think we know what it means to heal someone who's blind. And we already know what we think the right or good kind of body would be like or mind. Um, and so as outsiders, um, you know, we come to the text with that definitional baggage. And so then like, you know, we read this text that all kinds of things may be happening in the encounter of the person with Jesus. But what we notice is the thing we're pre-programmed to notice, which is that healing is curing. And so what happened that was healing in the narrative is that there was a blind guy who, whose eyes were not able to see, and at the end, they could see again. That's it. Um, and so I think recognizing, hey, that's weird that in most of the healing narratives, the gospel writers seem to include how people around are impacted by what just happened. How did they respond? Like they're including all these other details that, you know, for us, we're like, well, they're not essential to the story because that's not what healing, that's not what the healing is. The healing is the bodily change that takes place. Um, and then coming to realize, well, maybe if we want to get a little bit more of an insider's like idea of what what does healing really mean? What what's Jesus actually doing that's healing in the biblical perspective? Maybe we need to shed some of those biomedical pre-definitions that we bring to the text and really let the text tell us what what is healing? What is the healing that Jesus is doing in people's lives? So we all have a, a different perspective on, on being cured and also what a healthy body looks like. What is the perspective as you dug in and, and, a, and I realize I'm asking you to summarize like the center part of the book, like <laughs> hundreds of, so if you could just like in three minutes do the whole book, that'd be great. But the difference between the perspective on healing for the New Testament culture, because yeah. we're really focusing on Jesus and the in the Gospels, the Old Testament has a different a different perspective altogether. Sure. But focusing on Jesus and the Gospels, what's the distinction? Like, what's the key distinctions between a Western biomedical view and a ancient Near Eastern first century uh, view, like the Jesus and the Gospels? Yeah, great. Um, so, you know, like I've kind of hinted at the. Western biomedical view is very individualistic, very body focused. Um, and so it's all about what we sometimes call the medical model of disability, which is that, you know, if somebody has, let's say a physical disability, then the problem, quote unquote, is that whatever aspect of their body doesn't work um, the way that we think it should. And so the solution then, in that model would be uh, fixing that. And so um, 
you know, that's kind of the Western understanding often of healing. And, and we see that, you know, it makes sense because when we think about who are the healers in our time, I mean, I think when we think more deeply about that, people would give really broad answers and we would start to think about healing in lots of different ways. But it's really a kind of knee-jerk idea, especially when we're thinking of people with disabilities, that what healing means is is curing and returning, pe returning people to some bodily normalcy. Um, but in the Gospels, um, and this is why the subtitle of the book is Holistic Healing, um, it really is just this more holistic sense of flourishing. And like that word shalom, um, that's kind of about wholeness, that isn't just about do your eyes work or not, do your legs, you know, do you walk around on your legs or not? It's really a much bigger question than that. Um, it's really a question of how are you integrated into your society? Are you able to have a vocation and share your gifts? Are you able to have meaningful relationships? Do you have a thriving spiritual life? Are you connected to God? Um, all these levels, even you know, financially, spiritually, relationally, socially, um, and bodily. I mean, all these things matter. They're all a part of who we are, and Jesus cares about all of these things, and all these things are being transformed as Jesus interacts with people. Um, you know, Jesus, in the healings, he often will call someone son or daughter or, you know, you're a child of Abraham, that kind of thing. There's this um, clarifying of the person's identity that happens often in these healing. And, and a lot of times it's very public. And so it isn't just this person needs some kind of functionality restored, um, but it's who is this person in the community? Does the community recognize this person as a part of the kin group, as a part of the family of God, as someone, um, you know, yeah, just who's, who's in and not out. And so I think that Jesus's way is to make sure that we know that, that everybody's in, in a certain way. And so it's a lot more than just this kind of physical thing. Um, and sometimes, you know, like people like to point to Zacchaeus as an example of someone who isn't actually physically transformed at all um, in his, and, and we don't always think in our culture, because again, we have this outsider's understanding. We don't always think of Zacchaeus as having a disability because we're like, ah, he's just a short guy. I know lots of short people. Um, and, but really, in, in scripture, the only people that are given physical descriptors are people with, who are gonna be like physically healed. Um, that's really the only bodies we have described in the Gospels. So the fact that we have a physical description of Zacchaeus and he, and the same language is used in Jesus's relationship with him that like Shalom, you know, like, um, you know, he, God has saved you. Um, it's the same language in the healing narratives and his body isn't transformed, but yet it's very clear that that's a healing that has taken place. And it parallels a lot of the other healing stories, even though there's no bodily change. So I think that shows that there is this kind of distinction between what we like to think of as a healing and what scripture tends, these, all these other levels that are being hit in the stories with Jesus encountering people. Wow. There's, there's about a thousand things in what you just said that I'd love to talk about. So this podcast is probably going to be about three hours. So. <laughs> 
the things I keep the things I hear are these. One is this this conversation is a is a, a conversation about the formation of people who are not disabled as well. Uh, there's a there's a perspective shift that needs to happen um, because for whatever reason we've adopted some people have adopted and you talked about the the drive by prayers that's coming from a place that feels like faithfulness mm-hmm. like it's coming from a place that feels like compassion absolutely like if I love if I believe Jesus can heal that person why wouldn't I and if nothing happens then you know, it's one of those like, well, if God shows up, great. And if not, then it must not have been the right time or the right place. Not thinking that how many times has this happened to this person? Yeah. Like at some point when you're on the 50th drive by, you know, praying, yeah. what does that do to you? Right. The other thing I hear is that healing for a church, a community could be something as simple as making sure that your facilities are accessible. Sure. Uh, and that that could be a way of healing that restores the ability of a person uh, to come back. But the other thing I hear is something that you actually mentioned in the book that I found fascinating is that healing does not have to be a person's disability being relieved. Right. And there is actually a story of someone who had just accepted, had come to accept that this is who they are. And someone asked them, like, well, if you had faith, this would be healed. And you're like, I, I don't really feel like I need that. Yeah. How does the interaction there happen when you have, for, I mean, this is coming from a personal place for me. We had a, a person on staff who uh, was paraplegic and and hadn't uh, hadn't been able to use his legs for years. And people would always come by and say, "You're one of the most faithful people I know." Like, how is it that God hasn't healed you of this yet? Yeah. It, what is the impact of that statement on a person yeah. who has just accepted, who's just come to know that this is who I am? Yeah. And I'm still, this doesn't distance me. How, what is the, can you describe the impact of that? Well, I mean, I can come close to it just from, I mean, I haven't experienced it, but I've heard enough of it. Um, I think there's there's a couple of things I want to hit. One is I want to talk about the distinction between people who are born with their disability versus people who become disabled later in life. Um, yeah, that's good. And I think that it, that that's an important distinction, which you can't know as you're seeing someone at the grocery store. Um, because for some people who like, you know, obviously someone who comes up in a lot of circles is Johnny Erickson Tata, right? So she has a particular story, which is that she um, had an accident in her later teenage years and, um, you know, now is a wheelchair user and things like that. And so she had a life before that where she was running and jumping and all of that. And she like is very excited about the time in heaven when that will be restored to her. Um, and then there are people I know who have been, who are also wheelchair users um, and who have their entire lives been wheelchair users. And that's just who they've been from their exit of the womb. And so um, I think for them, there can be a real understanding that I, this is me. God, this is the body that God intentionally created for me and that that it isn't wrong. And so for someone to kind of, and I think that's where Christians have some um, different opinions. Um, But for somebody who's lived in a body their entire life, you know, they're like, this is me. And it's actually really important sometimes for them to come to a place with God to say, you know what, 
I'm not a mistake. God didn't like accidentally make me this way. Um, but God gave me this body and it's different from your body, but it's a body that God created and is worth as much as anyone's body and has things to contribute in the world. Um, and so I think getting back to the other question about what is the impact of that drive by prayer, especially if you're going to tie it to, wow, you have so much faith, how shocking that you're not having the kind of body I think you should have. Um, there's just, <laughs> it's, it's really undoing what is probably a lot of hard work in someone's life. Um, you know, anybody who doesn't match up with what we kind of think someone should be like um, in terms of body or mind or whatever, it takes probably a lot of work with God and healing to come to the place of being able to own the person God has made you to be. Um, and to say, you know what, I can say yes to who God has made me to be. It's like I think about, you know, the clay doesn't say to the potter, why have you made me like this? Um, I mean, we say that all the time. <laughs> but, um, you know, the idea is to say there's some intentionality in who, how God made you. And so for someone to then come by after maybe you've done a lot of work to be healed and to be able to embrace who God has created you to be and the maybe particular vocation that grows out of um, the, your own embodiment, then for someone to kind of come by and say, this is wrong, you're not meant to be this way. Um, it can just be really, it, it's, it's so harmful on a really fundamental level. I wonder, I wonder how much, so I think there's some of the reaction from people who do not have a disability and we're, t and I think in the, in my, the picture in my head that I'm seeing is disabilities that are very apparent. Exactly. So blindness, you know, wheelchair users, yes. things like that. Um, even profound, you know, birth defect oriented sort of disabilities as well. Uh, but we don't think about things like depression, anxiety. Right. Um, I wonder how much of our response to that, and I say our in terms of the non-disabled community, our response to that is based on a faithful desire to see people occupy the body that we do right. and have the advantages we do. And how much of it is... And I think I just would love to hear your opinion on this. How much of it is, and I think it can be both, are seeing something that we don't want to think about. Hmm. Yeah. That, that there's yeah. a complication to life that exists because, not that the people are the complication, but we would like to see, we, we see things, we see our own frailty in someone who's, who is disabled. Is, do you see that? Is that something that you, you hear or see in that? conversation? Absolutely. Um, and I think in terms of that second option, I feel like there's a lot of ways we associate uh, in our culture disability with suffering. Like there's so many times where um, disability and suffering are almost synonymous that we just assume if someone has a disability, they must be suffering. And partly, we all suffer as humans, so yeah, they probably do have some suffering. <laughs> but I think um, the other question is, is the suffering directly related to their disability? Is it because there's something inherent in, um, and like you, we were talking about the difference between impairment and disability, um, 
which has some pushback, but the basic idea is an impairment is kind of something, a bodily limitation or mental limitation. And then the disability is kind of how that impairment interacts with the world. So like if somebody's a wheelchair user, yes, they, their legs are not necessarily, they have an impairment in that their legs aren't walking. Um, but if there are ramps to go everywhere they need to go, it's not really a disability because they can kind of still encounter the world as they need to. But um, yeah, so this, this question of suffering then, is the suffering because of the impairment itself or because we've structured the world in such a way? And again, I'm kind of defaulting to the physical just because it's, it's easier to conceptualize. Um, but, you know, um, a friend of mine, Jeff McNair, who does work on this as well, talks about social ramps in the same way we talk about, like, physical ramps. Um, and the fact that our social, con socially constructed world is also kind of inaccessible to a lot of folks. Um, and so is the suffering that people encounter that we don't want, that we see when we see someone with a disability, um, how much of it is, like, because they just have a disability um, and how much of it is because the world has been set up in a way that creates suffering because we haven't created accessibility to social structures, jobs, buildings, whatever that's needed for folks. Um, so I think that's a big, a big part of it. Um, and yeah, I think it just, we tend to think that people you know, we know our own lives and we know our own bodies. And so we know the things we enjoy. And so we don't know what the enjoyment is of someone <clears throat> who has a very different embodiment from us. And so we just think, oh, how sad that you don't get to experience X, Y, and Z that I experience. Whereas they may be having some experiences we're not having, um, but we're not privy to that. So we kind of, we all tend to like be in our own heads about things. So, um, Anyway, so those are, that's kind of a all over the place answer um, to some of that. No, it's good. the The final piece of what you write and what you talk about is the seven healing, the marks of healing in the way of Jesus. And I wondered if you had if you had a chance to sit down with a group of people or an individual who was just really hungry to respond to disability in the way Jesus would, but here and now. Yeah. Uh, what, what are some things you would give to them as far as whether it's practical or philosophical or maybe even um, worldview shifts? Yeah. Like what are the things they would need to kind of pursue Jesus's way of healing, but here in our contemporary culture? Yeah. Yeah, that's great. So again, and I feel like I just keep hammering this point, <laughs> so I'll hammer it now again. It's fine. But, um, the very first... I think the very first mark that I, cause I, you know, come up with these seven, like if we want to practice healing as Jesus did in our own context, recognizing that, you know, it's probably not the best idea if you encounter someone who's blind to spit into the dirt and create mud and spread it on their eyes. I do not recommend that. Um, you know, obviously following Jesus is not just woodenly doing the things that he did. And so we have to do some kind of contextualization. And part of that means we think about how our bodies and disability perceived in our context. And that matters in terms of what we think healing will be like. Um, so I, I very intentionally put as the very first mark of what like a practice or community of healing 
in the way of Jesus would look like to be that it has a positive reception by the person receiving healing. And this is kind of a very, you know, as you can tell from the earlier comments about the drive-by prayers and whatnot, um, that's, it's a very key thing that because we see, and I'm just not, I'm not just making this up because I don't want people's feelings to get hurt. It isn't just about that. I do actually care about people's feelings, but it's also that when Jesus interacted with people, we don't see them leaving the interaction of healing, being angry or feeling demeaned or feeling that their faith has been diminished. It's always, I mean, at worst neutral, but almost always something like, worshipful, becoming a follower of Jesus, joyful. I mean, there's this positive reception. And so if we are wanting to practice healing in the way of Jesus today, then there needs to be the people who are actually the objects of our healing need to think that it is healing that's happening. (laughs) And so if people are being wounded, then we're definitely not following Jesus. <laughs> it definitely sounds like a no-brainer, but yeah, that's that's important. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and part of the way we get to that is by including people in the conversations about setting up ministries, setting up practices, um, making sure the voices of people with disabilities are in leadership and are part of creating what our communities would be like. Um, And then beyond that, just really thinking holistically about all these various aspects of life and ways that our communities can be, you know, our church practices can be um, very exclusive to certain people. And we don't recognize it because if it fits us, we kind of assume that it fits everyone. Um, And if someone doesn't fit in, we tend to think, oh, what's their problem that they don't fit in? rather than thinking, oh, what an exclusive structure we've created that doesn't allow this person to be welcomed. Um, So I guess in terms of a practical thought, just as people are in their communities, um, church communities and maybe even other kinds of communities, that to hold the way you do things a little bit loosely um, and to let that be the thing that, um, you know, is up for redefinition and not just if this person can't sit still for an hour and it's like, well, why do you have a service where people have to sit still for an hour? That's kind of a high bar for a lot of people. Why don't you just do things differently? Why don't you have a wiggle time? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'm just saying, <laughs> you know, what, what do we, what do we take as up for transformation? And usually if it's someone with a disability, we're like, ah, this person with like a mental, health struggle who's coming into our community, they're just doing X, Y, and Z. And so we need to support them so they can fit in to like the way we do things. Instead of saying, wow, what a gift that this person has shown us the limitations of our current structures and practices, that we actually don't have an accessible structure. Let's allow the Holy Spirit to like creatively reimagine a way that we can all be together. Um, and encounter God together that actually allows people to participate who might not otherwise. Yeah, that is a beautiful challenge. Thank you so much for this. This is, the conversation has just been so incredibly helpful. And I I do pray that people will, will read what you've written too. There's so much 
theological. So reading the intro to the book, this is your uh, thesis work, correct? Yeah, I mean, I reworked it. Don't worry. It's like very accessible. Well, That's what I was about to say. Like if if people read that and they're like, oh, man, this is a thesis. I don't know. But it's such an accessible uh, piece of writing. And I think people, regardless of whether they, you know, there might be some folks listening who are still on the drive by prayer thing uh, and feel like that's their response. I feel like you need anybody needs to read this and have their worldview shaken a bit on how to respond and what healing really looks like. And, and even at the core of it, how you read the Bible just in general, uh, cause that's how we get to some of those conclusions. So I appreciate you doing the legwork and taking the passion that you have for this into the pages. Cause it definitely comes through. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm grateful to have talked with you today. I appreciate it. Bethany McKinney Fox is founding pastor of Beloved Everybody Church in Los Angeles, an ability-inclusive community where people with and without intellectual disabilities participate and lead together. She's an adjunct professor of Christian ethics at Fuller Theological Seminary as well, and she's the director of spiritual formation for New Church Starters for Cyclical LA. She and her husband, Michael, live in Los Angeles and enjoy exploring the city and making music together. I love that. Thank you for listening today. I hope this conversation has been encouraging for you, maybe challenge some things you thought about healing and disabilities. If you're listening to this on my website and streaming it, thank you for doing that. If you're listening on iTunes, thank you for doing that as well. And if you have a chance, like I always ask, if you would do a rating or a review and a review, either one, uh, that would be fantastic. I would really appreciate that. So more good episodes coming up. about to record a couple even today as I finish this one. So subscribe, keep listening, and also be well, live wisely. Peace, friends. <laughs>